We're dealing today with the problem of evil. And that is the problem of bad things, that bad things happen in life and how this affects our faith in God. Let's face it, really bad things happen. I mean, bad things, horrible things, things that are hard to even think about, let alone experience. There are times where in life, in the world, there's terrible abuse. So there's, there's parents who are terribly abusive to their children. There's the death of loved ones, which is a trauma that um, you have to go through to even know what that's really about. There's children who have bone cancer, who are slowly perishing in the hospital. And their parents are, are praying and praying. And maybe some of them are getting healed, but some of them are not. There's tsunamis, there's natural disasters, there's earthquakes, there's famines, there's all sorts of other things like this. The world has a lot of bad stuff. And so this leads you naturally to ask the question, if God's good, why is there so much bad stuff going on in the world? Some people, they think that there is no God because of this question. They go, well, there is no God. God must not exist. It's, they think it's impossible for God to exist while evil things might be happening somewhere in the universe. If there's evil happening anywhere, it means that God doesn't exist. Other people, they still believe that God exists, but because of this problem of evil, they rebel against God. They shake their fist at God. God, I, I'm mad at you. You've allowed this stuff to happen, and I judge that you're bad for letting this stuff happen. And they, they get mad at God. Um, so you're going to encounter this problem. Either it's going to hit your own heart because you'll struggle with hardship and you'll go, I don't understand. I want to know why, 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 why? And you might get more and more angry as you ask that question. Or you'll encounter it in the, in the mouths of other people as you're sharing your faith, as you're witnessing, as you're telling people about Jesus, where they might ask you this question. What about the problem of evil? So that's what I want to do today. I want to answer this question. I want to, and there are good answers for this question. Um, but I also want to be very open and real and honest with you. I'm not trying to spin anything. I'm not trying to manipulate. I want to be as clear as possible on this subject. So to start with, let me say this. There's two sides of this issue that we got to deal with. The emotional problem and the intellectual problem. The emotional problem and the intellectual problem. These are two different sides of the coin dealing with the problem of evil. In fact, at first when I said, if God's good, why do bad things happen? You probably thought, yeah, that's an intellectual problem. But then as I started describing some of the bad things, you started to feel your emotions go out a little, right? Your heart goes out to like this child that might have bone cancer, some terrible thing going on with them. But let me, let me explain to you the difference between the, the emotional and the intellectual issue. Let's suppose that here you are, you're at church, you're in a Bible study, and I look and I, I zero in on your face. And my face becomes angry. Angry and oh, I'm so mad. And then I look at you and you can see it in my eyes. You're like, he looks like he's mad at me. And I yell at you, stop it. And you're like, I don't even know what I'm doing. Like, and I yell at you again, stop or I will kill you. And you're like, what? And then I pull out a gun and I point it at you and I yell, stop or I'll kill you. And now you're totally freaked out. And then I pull the trigger. Boom. You feel the bullet fly past you as I apparently miss. And you're traumatized. Your heart is pounding. Your blood is pumping. You're freaked out. You're like, I knew it. I knew Mike was a psychopath. I knew it this whole time. And you're really freaked out until you look behind you and you see there was a guy coming up behind you with an axe ready to bury it into your head. And you realize that whole time I was yelling at him, protecting you. Now, intellectually, you've solved the riddle. But the emotional trauma is not over yet, is it? You're like, I still have that memory of him pointing a gun at me and I thought I was going to die. You might not even want to talk to me, even though what I did was actually good for you. You might just be like, oh, I just like, yeah, that freaked me out. I saw it in his eyes. He had death in his eyes. You know, it, it's, it's, it's an emotional problem. It's an intellectual problem. And sometimes our emotions don't line up with the truth of things, right? And that's the issue we've got here today. So what I want to do is I want to ask your permission. I want to take you from the feeling level, the emotional level where most of us hang out, and ask you to be on the thinking level, the intellectual level, just for a moment. Let's set aside your feelings about the problem of evil, and let's talk intellectually about it, and then we'll come back to the emotions later. Let's try to straighten out the intellect, and then we'll try to deal with our emotions. So, hopefully I have your permission to do that. Let's set aside for a minute your emotions. Let's talk about what's true. What's true about this evil, this evil issue. Now, first off, dealing with the intellectual side, we realize the problem of evil is actually two different problems. 
And one of them is the problem of moral evil, and the other one is the problem of suffering or pain. Suffering and pain and moral evil, these are two very different issues that are going on. Moral evil is like that, that person abusing someone else. That's morally evil. Murder, theft, rape. This is moral evil. That's morally wrong. And that's a problem. That's one question. Then there's a separate question that's the problem of suffering or the problem of pain. I have, a, I have an issue of problem of pain that's been bugging me recently over the past couple of weeks. You see, I, I don't know why, but when I chew, I chew very hard. And every once in a while, my lip decides to like commit Harry Carey in my mouth and jump in between my teeth as I'm chewing really hard. And so I will mash down on my lip and hear the cracking and popping of my own physical mouth. And then the blood gushes and stuff. Well, then I've, sw I've swollen up my mouth because of biting it. So what happens next? I bite it again. I bite it again. And again, I did it again this morning. I did it yesterday. I did it a couple days before that. It's been going on for like two weeks because I'm an idiot and I keep chewing the same way. Apparently, I can't retrain myself. I'm like, oh, gum, it freshens my, ah, you know, <laughs> no more gum for me. This is not a problem of moral evil, though, is it? What's that a problem of? Pain, physical pain. It's a problem. I don't like it. But the, the physical problem of pain and suffering, this is what connects to things like disease or cancer or, um, or natural disasters, a hurricane. That's not a moral evil. It's a, it's, a, it's a suffering problem. It's a pain problem. So suffering or pain is unpleasant. It, it can even be terrible pain, but it doesn't make it immoral. It doesn't make it immoral. So let's first talk about the moral problem of evil. You see the two problems? Moral evil and pain. Two, two different issues. <clears throat> so moral evil is real. There is real moral evil out there in the world. This is legitimate. Some people deny this, right? Like there are certain like Eastern religions that will just deny that moral evil even exists, that they're all pantheism, and they don't think that moral evil even happens. But moral evil does happen. And believe it or not, as a Christian, this should strengthen your faith in God. What do I mean? Well, what I mean is this. If moral evil didn't happen... It would be because there was no God. See, if there is no God, there's no moral evil. There's no real reason how you can say to somebody, you ought to do this, you ought not to do that. This is morally right, that's morally wrong. So if moral evil really exists in the world, then this is actually evidence for God, not evidence against God. Emotionally, it's evidence against God, but not intellectually, not in reality. If you're an atheist... You have to believe that there isn't any moral evil in the world. So you can't come to God and complain, God, why is there moral evil? Because you don't believe in God or moral evil if you're consistent in your worldview. You can't be like, it's just wrong. Rape is just wrong. Well, when, when I see a, a great white shark on the Nature Channel and it gets together with a female shark, it forces itself upon her. But we don't call this rape. We don't call that because it's forced. We don't call it that. It's just that there's no moral, real moral quality. These are just sharks. But with people, we see there's a moral element to what we're doing because there's a God who's told us how he wants us to live. So moral evil really is evidence for God. If, if there was no God, there wouldn't be any moral evil. But here's the question that I have to struggle with. Is there purpose behind God allowing this moral evil to happen? Is there a reason why God... And I'm going to give you <clears throat> four reasons why I think God legitimately allows moral evil to happen in this world. And the first, probably biggest reason is the, the phrase free will. Free will. Free will is a good thing. Free will is my ability to choose what I'm going to do next. You know, I can choose to keep talking and deliver this message, or I can choose to grab my wallet and go to Krispy Kreme and get a donut. But I will choose wisely. <laughs> no, I will, I will choose to, to keep going here. But it's a decision. I don't have to even be here. You didn't even have to show up today. Oh, but my mom made me. Well, you actually, you could have stabbed her with a fork and then ran the other way. I mean, you have free will. This is free will that you have. <clears throat> now, free will is a good thing. Free will is a good thing. I think we agree with this. I like being able to choose things in my life. But there's a problem with free will. And free will is this. It allows evil. You can't really allow true free will without also letting people do wrong things. So... Evil comes as a consequence of God letting us make decisions, letting us have free will. Free will's good. Robots don't compare to people. 
Imagine if you had your, your best friend and it's a robot. Now I know that there are some people on earth whose best friend really is a robot. That's sad. Like we all know that's really pathetic, right? That's not how it's supposed to be. People are different than robots. <clears throat> so this actually answers the question of who made evil, because maybe that's on your mind too. Who made evil? Who created evil? Well, but evil wasn't created then. If evil is, is just me being allowed to decide to do things that are not right, then God didn't have to make evil. He simply had to give us free will, and we made the evil. When I chose to, when Cain chose to kill Abel, he created that evil situation, the first murder. So the first reason there's purpose behind free will is, um, the purpose behind evil, rather, is because God allows us to have free will. The second one is connected to free will, but it's different than free will. It's the concept of love. Love is arguably the greatest good there is on earth. Love, man. People loving each other, people loving God, God loving people. Imagine if you could take the earth and just remove love, all love gone. What's the point? What's the point? I mean, love is a great, great good. But imagine if I could design for you your perfect girl or guy. And then they would then, they would love you. Guaranteed they would love you. In fact, it's programmed into their DNA. They have to love you. They have no choice. No matter what you do, they like it. No matter how bad your joke is, they laugh at it. This is, this is the perfect person physically and, you know, character-wise and all this good stuff that you like. But they have no free will. They never choose to love you. It's just automatically programmed in. Do you like that? You're like, what's the point? What's the point, man? If you don't get to choose to care about me, then, then how are you really caring about me? <clears throat> so, love needs free will. And to, to say, I want to get rid of free will, and I, then I also want to get rid of love so that I can get rid of evil, is itself really kind of sad. And it's unfortunate. And it's a good reason to allow moral evil is to, to create the opportunity for good. The third reason is this. Purpose behind God allowing evil is, and this, this will make sense to someone who loves God. It will be confusing to someone who does not. But it's this. It's God's glory. God's glory. God judges moral evils. And this is a good thing. We want him to judge. We, we, we feel it in our gut that, that sin and moral evil is asking for judgment. Like God said to Cain about murdering his brother Abel, he who is his blood cries out to me. It cries out for judgment. It cries out for justice. And just like in a movie, the bad guy sort of lets the good guy show his colors. Now imagine watching the movies you've seen and take the bad guy out of, out of the equation. Well, maybe there wouldn't be a movie. <laughs> it wouldn't be there. But there's the bad guy allowing the good guy to show his colors. And there's an element of this in God allowing evil. God can bring good through judging and show his goodness and his glory and his righteousness by being the hero, saving the day and doing things right. Now, that's just one reason. It's not the whole reason, but that's one. And then number four, the fourth reason I have here is, is there purpose behind God allowing evil? And I think you'll appreciate this one very personally. Let's suppose for a second that God were to stop all evil. And God just said, no more evil. Boom. And he stopped all evil. Well, how does he do this? Well, it's easy. He just, he just looks around the universe and he looks at every possible source of evil and he eradicates it. He destroys it. He annihilates it. Would you enjoy that universe after all the sources of evil were annihilated? Why wouldn't you enjoy it? You wouldn't be in it. You are a source of evil. I am a source of evil. I have done evil things. I've done wrong things. And if God were to really just drop the hammer... And bring judgment right now and stop all sources of evil. He'd stop all human beings. So it is God's grace upon us that it allows us to continue existing and continue going. Now God has a limit to this. He's not going to let it go on forever. And he doesn't let people get away with anything they want. There's some limits that he places. We look at God's judging cities and, and worlds in the past like Noah um, the flood destroying the earth. God, God's like limiting the wickedness of man, but he's allowing them to exist because he's giving them time to repent and come to Christ. So stopping evil means stopping us. And that's the fourth reason is, is out of care for us, God lets us continue. So that's moral evil. I, I think in all honesty, 
it's not that hard to show that moral evil can exist while God exists. He just gives us free will, and then he works good through the things that are going on. It shows his judgment. It's time for us to repent, to get saved. All these different good things that are coming out of this. Uh, moral evils are caused by free will agents, people, and those people are responsible for their acts. God is not responsible for their actions. They have free will. And God has a good reason to allow it, and he limits it to some degree. So, I, I personally, I'm satisfied with that, intellectually, in my brain. So, the second question is this. That's moral evil. What about suffering? What about pain? What about cancer and tornadoes and hurricanes? What about people who fall into quicksand? You know, like, what about various different um, non-moral suffering? Is there purpose behind suffering? And I think that there's several things where there's purpose behind suffering. One of them is this. The first one. <clears throat> Suffering leads to lessons that we learn, character transformation, personal change that happens because I go through pain. It wakes me up. It gets me asking deep questions. I remember hearing the story of Bethany Hamilton. She's a pro surfer who uh, had, was attacked by a shark and she lost her arm, had, her arm, had to have her arm amputated or was eaten or something along those lines. It was destroyed by the shark. And she was there in the hospital and it was there after losing her arm that she starts asking deep, deep questions about God and about life. And it led her into doing a worldwide ministry, sharing the truths of God and of Christ with other people. It never would have happened had she not lost her arm to that shark. And there are countless, countless examples of people whose lives blossomed as a result of pain. As a result of difficulty and suffering. It allows us to respond nobly, right? There's lessons and character transformation from pain. Great men and women of the past, like godly men, godly women, have gone through suffering, just about every single one of them. Paul the Apostle talks about it. He goes, I've learned how to suffer in need and still trust in Christ. How did he learn it? By suffering need and, and de reaching deep down to trust in the Lord. And you can probably see this in your own life. Probably, if you really think about it. Can you think of pain you've gone through that taught you something? I think personally, I've learned more through suffering than I have through when times are good. I can learn more through five minutes of pain than I do through like a week of feeling great. Because we just don't really dig very deep when things are going fantastic. <laughs> that tends to be our, our nature. So imagine if you can, you have a world with no pain. There's like no pain of any kind in this world. And so <clears throat> you stub your toe, it doesn't hurt. You, you jump off a building, you break your leg, you just broke, but it doesn't hurt. What kind of people would we become? <laughs> dead? Poss quite possibly dead. Leprosy is an example of what happens when you stop receiving pain signals from your body. And you start losing body parts. But there's more than that. We would also become selfish, immature, shallow, proud, and not dependent on God. It is my frailty and weakness that has me calling out to God. If I, like, when you're young, you tend to think you're the king of the world. After a while, you start to realize you're the joker. You're the dunce. You know? <laughs> like, I'm not so fantastic. I'm not so amazing. I spend all this time as a, as a young person judging others for how they don't measure up, never looking at myself to see the plank in my own eye. Well, pain and difficulty, they humble us and they teach us deep lessons. And the lessons, think about this, the lessons are temporary. The pain is temporary, but the lessons you learn from them are permanent. The character is permanent. The pain is temporary. The character change is permanent. And on balance, permanent character growth is better than temporary pain. The second reason why God would allow pain and suffering would be because of correction. Um, Hebrews 12 talks about this. Let me read it to you. It says, Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful, nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That God will sometimes allow our lives to become uncomfortable or painful or even really painful in order to teach us lessons. This is a sense of correction. When God sees us going astray to cause us to wake up. It's like the spanking from the Lord. A third reason God would allow suffering and pain is for punishment. God really does allow these things for a sense of punishment. This does happen. We read about Egypt and we see about the 10 plagues. The 10 plagues weren't just coincidences. Like they were a natural type disaster, 
but it was miraculous, but it would have appeared like a nature rising up sort of. Uh, but what it was is God actually punishing them for their rebellion against God. And there are punishments that also come. Sin does cry out for, for judgment. And I mean, hell itself involves suffering. It involves a sense of pain, but, but it's just and good. It's right. This is a right thing and a good thing. And to, to not bring pain on those who fully deserve it when you're the righteous judge of the earth would actually be wrong to withhold that pain. And then there's also the book of Job. We learned some interesting stuff from the book of Job. Job, is his, his children are killed. His, his, his livestock are killed. His crops are destroyed. And he's afflicted with physical pain and suffering. And it's all because of issues that are going on between God and the angels and Satan. And Job is never in the book, he's never told why all this stuff happens. He asks why throughout the book. Why, 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 Lord, why? I need to know why. I've got to know why. Like so many who go through pain, they just feel like they have to know why. God never, never tells him why, but he does come and he starts asking him these questions. And he's like, Job, were you there when I created the world? This would be no. <laughs> like, were you there when I when I fashioned the, the animals? Were you there when I when I put the stars in the sky? Like, were you there? Do you know what's going on? And Job responds finally, he says, Oh, I was such a fool. I spoke words without knowledge. I wanted to know why. But who was I to think that God had to explain himself to me? And that's the danger of asking the question about why evil God. Is I'm sometimes acting like God has to answer to me. But he may have heavenly reasons. There may be reasons that have nothing to do with human beings on earth, but have to do with some angelic things that are going on. And that's how it is in the book of Job. There may be reasons there that you're simply not aware of because it has to do with spiritual powers and truths. And similar to this, number five, a fifth reason why I think God allows pain and suffering is because of, let's call it the butter, the butterfly effect. You've heard this before, right? The butterfly effect. The idea is that, you know, maybe somewhere like out in the middle of, I don't know, Uganda, there's like a butterfly that flaps its wings. And slowly this like builds up, you know, this wind creates this, that creates that. And all of a sudden there's a hurricane a year later. And I mean, that could happen. But think about this. You don't know how the events that are going on in your life are affecting somewhere else in the world, somebody else's life, or maybe a hundred years from now. You wouldn't even exist. You wouldn't even exist if it wasn't for the fact that your mom and dad's genetic information just happened to mix in that specific way at that exact time. It just, it just had to happen that particular way or you would not even exist. Life is full of so many moving parts that you honestly don't know what impact this pain or this suffering is going to have in some other way. It might be hundreds of years from now before you find out, if you do, why such and such has happened. But the world and life is a lot bigger than you and me. And this butterfly effect is basically saying, God, I know that there's a lot of things in motion in the world. And this pain and suffering could be causing all sorts of different things to happen that I do not know about. And the number six, sixth reason why, why we see pain and suffering in the world is because uh, we're in a fallen world. We're in a fallen world. Now, pain says to you, this isn't right, right? When I bite my lip and it shoots pain through my head, it says to me, something's wrong. Something is wrong. And when we see the world around us with a lot of suffering, a lot of evil, a lot of pain, we say something's wrong. And that's a good thing for us to recognize. It's a fallen world. Now, I don't think any of these is like a one-size-fits-all situation, uh, but I think that they give us reason to have hope. Because you could look and you can, you can go, you know what, I may not know this, but I think that that one applies to this situation, and maybe that one applies, and possibly this one too. And it gives you some sort of sense of intellectual like anchor to grab onto and go, okay, okay, I can see this, I can see this. <clears throat> In my own life, um, I, I remember being very bothered by the lack of attention and a lack of care that I felt like I experienced at home. And the, uh, the fact that I felt like my dad didn't care about me growing up. And my stepdad was kind of, I felt like he hated me. <laughs> I don't think I'm the only one who thought that. Um, and, and, and some other things that were going on around, around the home. What's interesting is that this is what actually, now in hindsight, in hindsight, now I'm 38 years old and I look back upon my life a little differently and I go, that was what caused me to be so desperate for God. 
I wasn't even asking questions about God otherwise. I would have been just like every other kid that I knew. But because I was going through hardship, because I was so discontent with life, because things were bad, I decided to ask the deeper questions. I mean, like, God, I need you. I need help. And that actually led me to my faith in God. And so I look back at it now, and I'm glad. I'm not kidding. I'm glad that things happened the way they did. I'm grateful for it. Because I'm afraid that if it had happened differently, I might not have come to Christ. And so I'm, I'm grateful that God worked in that situation. Now, does that make it good that my dad or stepdad acted these ways? No, it doesn't make it good. It just means God's good. <laughs> and he works it good into these situations, and I'm really grateful for that. So here's what we do know. I know that, if, for those who are wrestling with suffering, I know that creation was not always this way. This isn't just part of the original plan. This isn't part of the original arrangement where it's like permanently this way, always this way. This is not how it's always been. That free will has to be, uh, has to be involving the issue of evil, that that's, that's just, they come together. I know that suffering is useful, that God uses it. I also know that suffering is temporary. Creation will not always be this way. There's a new heaven and a new earth, and then I can have great hope and peace in that. I also know that God limits suffering and pain. There's all sorts of things he doesn't let happen. I, I just imagine if he took his hand off the world. You know, would the Cold War have resulted in a nuclear destruction across, you know, two-thirds of the earth? Maybe. Maybe you'd be dead already if God wasn't already at work in your life. That's what we do know. Here's what we don't know. We don't know why individual situations are, are, are going wrong. I don't know why this person got cancer. I don't know why that hurricane or tornado hit. How would I know this? What kind of arrogance do some people have to like look at someone else's situation from miles away and be like, yep, I know why that happened. How do you know that? You're just guessing. You don't know anything. God's plan is not obvious to me. I shouldn't act like I know what's going on. Can we agree? I shouldn't act like I know what God is doing in someone else's pain in some situation that I'm not even involved in. I don't even know what he's doing in my pain half the time. Or more. <laughs> but if this is true, if it's arrogant to act like I know what's going on, then isn't it equally arrogant to act like I know God's not doing anything in that pain? Isn't it arrogant to point my finger at that pain and say, no, no reason, and then point my fist at God and say, you're wrong for letting this happen? How arrogant. I don't even know what's going on. And I'm arrogantly doing this. To say to God, there's no reason, there's no worthwhile good, there's no sufficient comfort for the thing that's going on, is to just act like you're God, like you know all that stuff, and you really don't. Only an infinite mind would be able to conceive of all the different things that are going on. What, what, what some philosophers like to call counterfactuals. <laughs> all the various little pieces of the puzzle, all the, all the little, uh, you know, think of it as the old, that, that rat game, that board game where you set up all the pieces and the rat goes through. Mousetrap. There it is. Mousetrap. You know, you're putting the game together. You don't even know. I don't know why I'm putting this gear here, but this little thing says I'm supposed to. And then finally you, you tick it over and you're like, oh, 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 now I get it. Took me, I had to look at it to get the, get the mousetrap. What do you think is going on in life and all the moving pieces that are going on? I think I can, I can say I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why this is happening. I can't tell you why your, your father died. I can't tell you why your daughter got hit by a car. I can't tell you why your best friend decided to get into drugs. I, I can't tell you why these things happen. Nor would I expect to be able to tell you why. But I can be comforted by the truths that we've intellectually given right here. So in conclusion, if you want to say that God can't exist because of the problem of evil, you have to say that you know a whole lot more than you know. A whole lot more than you know. I mean, only pointless, constant suffering in the absence of good would show that the Christian God doesn't exist or be somehow evidence for it. Pointless, constant suffering in the absence of good. But that's not what we see around the world, is it? It's what we see is temporary and purposeful based on uh, the reasons I've given, but plus based on scripture. So let me give you guys, I want to challenge you for a second. There's something called the logical problem of evil, and, and it goes like this. I'm going to challenge you with this, and I want to see if you can give me the rebuttal after I've shared all this stuff with you, okay? And then we'll talk about emotions in a second. Um, it goes like this. If God is all good, God would want to stop evil because he's good. Make sense? Then they say this. If God is all powerful, 
then he can stop evil. He has the ability to stop evil because he's so powerful. Does that make sense? Then they conclude this. Evil hasn't stopped. Therefore, either God is not good or God is not all-powerful or there is no God. Anybody think that maybe you could think of an honest, rational way to respond to that? Go ahead and take a moment and think about it. If God's all good, he, can, he, he wants to stop evil. If he's all powerful, he can stop evil. Evil hasn't stopped. God must not be good. God must not be powerful or simply doesn't exist at all. Yeah, Gavin. They like rule out if he wants to stop evil right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's, there's one word that you can add at the very end of the argument. If God's all good, he would want to stop evil. I agree. If he's all powerful, he can stop evil. I think I agree with that too. Yeah. Evil hasn't stopped yet. See, what, what, the, what the thing assumes, it assumes that right now is the way things have been, are, and will always be. But if they wait, I don't know, 10 minutes till Jesus comes back or a thousand years or whatever it's going to be, then they won't be able to ask this argument because it will have been stopped. Sir? Also, um, it's kind of in the box thinking. Like, God can turn evil into good. It doesn't have to be, I stop evil, and so now it's good. God can, Pastor Gary was just saying this in his study, God uses all things for good to those who love him. So he can take this evil in the same situation you're in and make it this amazing thing that you wouldn't change for the world. So it's not so linear. It's not in the absence of evil, there's good. God can change it into what it is and make it something that defines who you are. So God kind of is outside of that. Absolutely. So in other words, it's more complicated than that. I mean, if God was going to stop evil, he's got to stop you and me. He's got an even better plan. He's going to redeem you and me. Not just stop us, save us change us so that those who are the sources of evil become transformed. God's going to work and bring good out of the evil that's going on currently. And then when you're in heaven for eternity, you're not really going to care about the little pains you experienced while you were on earth. So it, so the problem falls apart. It's really not a problem, the, the, the quote logical problem of evil. Um, <clears throat> now, that all being said, this does not mean that pain and experiencing moral evils in the world won't mess you up emotionally. Because it will. So let's talk for a second about the emotional side of issues. Um, I'm just saying that intellectually, pain and suffering doesn't challenge God's, God's existence or even God's goodness. But emotionally, I'm, you know, you're just like not okay because life is not okay. And you know what I'm talking about. We've all been not okay. Very not okay in our different experiences. Um, so the emotional problem of evil is to say this, that I'm traumatized by the idea of the existence of the suffering that I've experienced or that I have seen other people experience. That's a problem. It's an emotional problem dealing with evil, whether it's moral or, or physical pain. And I'm with you on this. Some people will say this. They'll say, I find it hard to conceive of how God could use this particular suffering for good. I'm down with God using different suffering, but this suffering. But why my suffering? Why my back problem? How could God be using that for good? My my baby who I carried in my womb for nine months was born and a week later died in, in sudden infant death in this in the in the uh, crib. How could God use that for good? And they, what they're saying is I can't think of how God is using this for some worthwhile good. I am with you. And if you listen to what I said earlier, you'll realize I'm not trying to say that we look to find out what good is coming out of every evil situation. Good luck with that. You don't know what's going on. You don't know the end of the story. You don't know much of what's going on. All you know is one piece, one freeze frame, one picture, and you're going to make that your whole, your whole universe of reality about God. But we just don't know all the details. I don't recommend trying to force good that God will bring out of this. Oh, well, you know, God, it's gonna, he's going to teach you lessons through it, and it's going to be good, and so that made it worth it. Oh, that's not a good thing to say. I don't know what God is doing. In the emotional problem of evil, not the intellectual one, but the emotional problem, 
We don't want bad answers and cheap comfort. We really don't. We really don't. So I've had people, I've, as a pastor, I've been there when people have passed away, when they've lost their loved ones, and they look at me and they go, I don't know why this is happening. Why? 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 And all I can think is, well, if they died of cancer, it's cancer is the why. But what they're asking is something else. They don't even know for sure what they're asking. They're just saying, I hate what's happening. I can't stand what I'm going through. It hurts so bad. Make it better. Or undo it. This is unfortunately not something that's in any of our power. The emotional pain of difficulty is, is, is a whole different issue. It's a whole different issue. But how you choose to respond to your emotions when you're suffering, it says everything about you. And it changes your life. Either you'll trust God or you're going to reject God based on your lack of understanding. I'm in this moment. I'm in this pain. I don't know what's going on. I'm confused. I'm struggling. So I will trust the Lord. Or I'm in this pain, I'm confused, I'm struggling, so I will reject God. What will you do with your lack of understanding? What will you do with your pain? A bad conclusion is to say, since I can't figure out what's good in this situation, I'm going to reject God. Now here's, here's a good solution, a good conclusion. God is smarter than me. I will trust his word that he will bring good from this. And I will rest in his goodness in the middle of the situations I'm experiencing that are not good. Just because you can't think of what good might come of it doesn't mean it's not there. Just because I can't think of how digestion works. I don't know how I eat a sandwich and that gives me energy for my legs to run. I don't understand that. But it doesn't mean it's not true. You don't need to lean on your own understanding here. That's the point. So what help is there for someone who's suffering? <clears throat> Well, the first thing I want to give is advice. This is advice. If maybe you're gone, you've gone through pain or you're, you're going through this. I'm, I'm going to do the best. I can't fix it for you, but I'll try to give you some counsel, some pastoral advice right now. I want to say this first. This will sound like it's, like it's the wrong thing to say, but I've but I got to say it. Watch out for pride. Watch out for pride that acts like the whole world revolves around you. I know you're in pain, but it doesn't mean the world revolves around you. I don't want to be like the kid who's out there playing with his buddies and then I get hurt or I'm losing the game, so I take my ball and go home. I'm going to ruin everybody's game because I'm having a bad game. You know what I mean? And, and I make the whole world all about me. Well, well, this translated into later life situations is really bad. It's, it's narcissism is what it is. It's like all obsessed with myself. And it will result in, God, make the world the way I need the world to be for me. That's what matters more than anything. Not your plan, not your agenda, not your will be done. My will be done, Lord. Mine. I refuse to accept what you're letting happen. That's a dangerous, arrogant thing to do. I have heard over and over crazy atheists, and this is crazy, saying that theoretically if they, were to, if they died and stood before God and found out God was real, that they would shake their fist at God and they would say, how dare you to God? And they would say to God, how dare you allow this to happen or that to happen? And they'd point at some horrible example, probably things they never even went through. And they would talk about how God must be evil for letting these things happen. And all I can think is, you're insane. There is no way you will stand before God and even have the guts to shake your fist at him. He's God. And the arrogance and the pride and the narcissism that comes from this. I mean, there are people who've gone through these situations and they still are praising and thanking God going, Lord, I don't understand, but I trust you. And I'm glad I have hope beyond the death of the loved one or whatever. And I have joy in you and I can trust you. And yet the atheist says, nope, that's not good enough. I just heard about your story and I'm mad at God about it. It's just arrogant and it's foolish. If this is you and, you're, and you've been hurt, I understand. But being angry because you're hurt is a mistake. I'm hurt, so I'll be angry. This is a classic mistake. It ruins marriages. It kills friendships. It destroys your relationship with God. Because I'm hurt, I'll be angry. How about because you're hurt, you'll just be hurt. Let it happen. Let that grief go through. My well-being is not the highest good in the land. And me looking at the world and saying that it's, it's going to work the way I want it to work is not the most important thing. It's God's glory. And this is what Job repented of at the end of the book of Job. He's like, Lord, I was a foolish man. I was a foolish man. Now, he was right about so much. But when he thought he could stand over God in judgment of God for what God would allow in his life, 
he was a fool. And he realized this, and God put him in his place. I would say, please don't forget to be thankful. Don't forget to thank God for the good things that he has done in your life. Don't forget to thank God for the promises for the future. Don't act like this moment is eternity. Because it's not. And I'd like to point out that if somebody's hurt and they're angry because they're hurt, the question is, what is your anger getting you? What are you benefiting from this anger? It's just messing you up from the inside out. Messes you up, messes up other people. It just does no good. In the end, you're just keeping yourself from hope. I'd like to ask the atheist who shakes their fist at God, what hope do you offer a dying child? What peace do you bring into a home when someone passed away? You atheists who stand there sarcastically going around the internet, haunting every Christian video you can find to mock and ridicule whatever you see. Do people call you when they're dying? Can you come and bring comfort into my life? You, I wouldn't want to be you. I wouldn't go. I ain't got no comfort for you. Your view of the world at that point is so bleak and so sad. But more importantly, it's not true. It's not true and it's based upon basically sarcasm, scoffing, and acting like one moment of pain is the eternal universe. When it's just not. So pastorally, there's three things that I want to point you guys towards if you're going through pain or you know someone who is. Um, and I'll, I'll abbreviate them. They're all with P's here. Make it easier to remember. This wasn't on purpose because I kind of dislike when people do that, but, but it happens. So uh, promises, presence, and patience. These are the three things that came to my heart as I was preparing to share with you guys today. Promises, presence, and patience. And the first one's promises. Um, there are promises God has given us that when we go through difficult times, we can cling to and we can hold to, and it will help us in those hard times. Promises like Romans 8.28 that Sarah mentioned a minute ago. That says, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose. Do you love God? Are you the called according to his purpose? Well, yeah. Then I know that everything's going to work together for my good. It'll be good toward me. Somehow this is going to end up in goodness towards me. It doesn't mean that the thing is good, but God will bring good out of it. Now I'm comforted by that, even if I don't know what good will come out of it. In Revelation 21, let me read this to you. This is a promise about our future. <clears throat> it says, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God, listen, will wipe every tear away. He's going to wipe away every tear. There shall be no more death nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. This life is temporary and one of the promises of God is not only that our future is eternally glorious, but there's this really interesting statement about him wiping away our tears. What do you think this means? I mean, it doesn't mean that like, hey, if you cry, God's like, whoop, don't do that. Whoop, wipe that away. What it means is that God's comfort is so much that even though you still remember the pain of the past, you don't feel the pain of the past anymore because it's been resolved. God has wiped that tear away. There's a, there's a future time where I will be okay, even if I'm not right now. There's also a new heaven and a new earth, the scripture says. And it says um, in Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. That the suffering you're going through now can't compare to the later glory. Imagine this. Imagine if you lived a horrible life on earth, 70 years of just blah, but you trusted in Christ, you, you, you were saved. 70 years of just horrible, horrible experiences. Now flash forward for a second. You've been in heaven for 7 trillion years. That's a long time. And if you could just go to that guy, say it's you, and I come to you and I say, hey, seven trillion years in, in, in God's glorious presence. Have the benefits outweighed the sufferings? Have the comforts overcome the pain? What do you think you would answer? Nope, that 70 years is worth you know, it's, it. Does, this is just a blink. It's a tiny little blink. It's a speck. It's a moment. And glory is forever. 
So that's why Paul says that the sufferings we go through now, though they are great, though they're intense, they're nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed. They can't even be compared. So that's God's promises. Also God's presence. I think you need God's presence if you're going through suffering. This is one of the glorious things that comes out of suffering is it gets me on my knees seeking the Lord and his help and his presence. Psalm 73 says this, it is good for me to draw near to God. It is good for me to draw near to God, draw near to the Lord. Maybe you were just living kind of a selfish life, sinning, and then pain came and it woke you up. You need God's presence. Philippians 4 says this, listen, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So you approach God in prayer, you dump out your heart and you pour out your heart and the issues that are going on. You ask for his aid and there's something of the peace of God that surrounds you, your heart and your mind. You need God's presence in your life. Psalm 61 verse 2 puts it this way. Listen to these words. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Lord, life is too much. Sometimes I need your presence. I got to seek you. I got to really be serious. It's not, you know, there's intellectual problems of pain. But then there is the emotional issues and the spiritual side of things. And I need you for that, God. I need your presence. I need you in my heart and in my life. Read the book of Psalms if you're going through suffering like this. And see how David cries out. And let that be an example of how you should cry out when you're in pain. And you will find that he found hope and you will find hope. Because if you draw near to God, God will draw near to you. And finally, patience. That's the third thing. If pastorally, I'd recommend for you is patience. The scripture says, wait on the Lord. It says it over and over and over again. Wait on the Lord and he'll renew your strength. He's going to help you out. He's going to get you through this. God will strengthen your heart. Wait on the Lord. I mean, it gets, it gets easier. It, life does get better. It does get easier. We get trauma, but then things get a little bit better as time goes by. That happens naturally. But waiting on the Lord is even better than this because things get much better in the future. Wait on that future, God's glorious future, is not even in this life. Seek his presence, but wait on his, on his promises for the future. Be patient. God really is working in you. So I'd encourage you to grieve. If you have to grieve, if you've got to cry, if you've, if you've got to break down, then break down. But then remember God's promises and seek his presence and have some patience for what he's bringing in your future. You trust the Lord. God is good. He hasn't abandoned. He hasn't stopped. He hasn't ceased. He hasn't failed. And it's so sad when people out of, out of uh, hurt, feeling pain, feeling wounded, and they get mad at God, they withdraw from God. I mean, you're not hurting God. You're hurting you. He's the one I need right now. He's the one I desperately need. I need to draw near to God. He's the help of my soul. He's my anchor. He's, he's everything I need. As Christians, we not only have an explanation for pain and suffering, showing that God has good reason for allowing it, but we also have somewhere to go with where, we're, with where our hearts are at in those times. This is just one of the many reasons why people need, need Jesus. <laughs> you need Jesus. I sometimes, as a pastor, I get called into situations where it's people who aren't believers. And I get called in and I get asked to, to minister to them. And it's, it's a little bit difficult because I... I don't know how to help somebody who doesn't have God. I can offer some aid. I can offer some counsel about taking things one day at a time. I can offer some concerns emotionally. Hey, have you eaten? You know, have you take care of some physical things like this? But the true, the true aid, the true satisfactory help for the pain I suffer is God, and it's only in God. Let's pray. Father God, we, we're grateful for your truths. Help us to not forget them when we're feeling down. Help us to have an anchor for our souls, have the strength and hope in Christ. Help us, Lord, to wake up to the truths of God. There are some, maybe even in this room, there are some hearing this, who've been shaking their fist at you, using, using the fact that they're upset about something as an excuse to not pray, to not seek you, to not walk with you. 
Lord, we pray that they would see that um, you're our Savior. You're not the enemy. You're our help. You're our hope. And you have good reason for allowing the things you do, even if we don't see it. God, help us to trust you with all, all of our hearts, and not lean on our understanding. Help us to learn it for the glory of Christ. And Lord, we look forward to the day when uh, we won't even be asking for any more explanations because we will be fully comforted eternally in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. You are